Doug Storm, this is Interchange. Our song is You Got to Be a Man by the Sheepdogs from the 2018 album Changing Colors. For our second show in our three-part series, A Targeted Divide, we bring you Crime, Decline, and the Rise of the Citizen Protector. How the meaning of citizenship is changing in a nation awash in firearms. In response to economic decline and reductions in services provided by the state, some men are taking the role of the state into their own hands, and in the name of a citizenship based on masculinist protection, showing us what the future of security services might look like. Our guest is Jennifer Carlson, an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Arizona, whose work focuses on gun politics, policing and public law enforcement, the politics of race and gender, and violence. She's the author of Citizen Protectors, The Everyday Politics of Guns in an Age of Decline, published by Oxford University Press. The book draws on in-depth interviews and participant observation at firearms classes, activist events, shooting ranges, and online gun forums to examine the growing popularity of gun carry among American men, especially in communities of economic decline. We begin with why Michigan became Carlson's locus of study and turn toward the politics of white, male, middle-class America. We'll also learn what it means to think that carrying a gun makes you a sheepdog. And now, crime, decline, and the rise of the citizen protector on Interchange. have interviewed gun carriers uh, in southeast Michigan as uh, I think it was part of your uh, originally doctoral research is that right That's correct Yeah and so uh, in Michigan southeast Michigan in particular uh, Detroit and Flint as well um, and this was post financial crisis so that's after the 2008 bubble burst uh, and uh, so why Michigan why those cities I realized I wanted to understand uh, gun culture, why Americans uh, were not just owning guns, but also carrying them. And so as I was thinking of states where I would try and tease apart what this, you know, what this social world was all about, um, I thought, okay, I'm going to end up in Texas. I'm going to end up somewhere in the South with this sort of, you know, a big kind of Southern culture of honor that's often associated with American gun culture. Um, But what ended up happening is that when I looked at that particular moment, which was 2010, when I finally uh, got on the ground and started interviewing and um, researching this. Um, it was actually Michigan that had one of the most vibrant state level um, or, uh, state level gun rights organization going on. So the Michigan Coalition for Responsible Gun Ownership, the Second Amendment Foundation, Michigan Open Carry, these were all groups that were actually doing a lot of on the ground um, activism um, that wasn't, it was connected to what the NRA was doing, but it, it, in some cases, but it was actually, you know, definitely distinct from the NRA by all accounts. 
So I ended up going to Michigan. Um, and once I got there, I realized, you know, this is actually a really interesting state, not just because there's a lot of a lot of stuff going on, a lot of interesting stuff in terms of uh, gun rights activism, but also because it's a historically blue state. It's a state with a lot of union organizing. Obviously, that's changed in recent years. Um, it was also a state that was in the midst of not just the national economic uh, recession, but also a recession that had um, that had been unfolding for much longer in Michigan. Um, so that I found actually really was a key part of animating the, the study and animating um, how people made sense of guns and, and the appeal of guns um, as something to carry as part of your everyday life. So you you mentioned a few things that sort of struck me there. One, uh, as a, a person in general, we, we can't help coming to these topics with preconceptions, right? So in, in terms of trying to understand um, what it might be that you were looking for, uh, you, you go in, I guess you go in with a thought, right? You, you, so you kind of already did with the idea of you would be headed south to, to this culture of honor and, and things of that nature. So you already had some sense of what guns might mean. How do, how do you, I guess, approach the, the preconceptions you have in the first place? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and I think that that's where um, I think sociologists and any researchers really have to be pretty clear about you know what they're coming, but you know what they're coming into their field of research uh, with. Um, and I have actually, um, you know, I, I've talked about in various form, forums my own background. Um, so I I do not uh, I do not try and take a, a clear stance on the gun the gun issue uh, in terms of gun rights or gun control. Um, I'm actually really interested interested in, you know, the meanings and the, the sort of ways in which guns come to matter for Americans. Um, that being said, though, I did grow up in a very conservative household. Um, I did not grow up in a gun-owning household, so I talk about this at the beginning of my book, uh, Citizen Protectors. Uh, I did not grow up in a gun-owning household, so to some extent, um, this was this was a new world uh, for me. Um, and I think that's you know that's that's also important to kind of understand um, you know how I was you know learning about this world really through um, for the first time not through you know my parents who took me hunting, but through these gun carriers that I met in my research. A lot of the things that you talk about in your book and what you talk about. In many of the articles that I've read that you've you've written as well, really sounds it really um, echoes most of the things that people talk about when they talk about Trump voters and talk about a, a backlash or response to Obama in in Trump and Trump supporters. Um, we had a, a guy on here, his name's Christopher Parker, who talked about just the simple fact that the majority of white middle-class men and even upper-class men, most, uh, most Trump voters actually are well, well-to-do white people for the most part, um, not being able to see themselves in Obama, that the, the presidency is a symbolic space, a symbolic idea, a, symbol, a figurehead that you're supposed to kind of imagine, this represents me as an American. And his point was that uh, a large a large portion of Americans couldn't see themselves in Barack Obama. Much of the argument about economics that we'll get to here has to do has to straddle that same line, right? The the response to an African American in, in the presidency and uh, the kind of dog whistle politics that follows that is so. When you talk about gun activism, is it simply um, a way that people organize politically? Uh, around other things and and so can talk about guns, but they're also doing other things within that space. 
any of the listeners right now could log on to the NRA's website or check out the NRA's Twitter feed, um, and you will see, particularly after the NRA got behind um, Trump, um, but there was you, you can see it actually as a trajectory. Um, this um, even even before the NRA supporting Trump, um, really this sort of using gun politics to talk about uh, many other things, to talk about the left, to talk about Hollywood elitism, to talk about um, you know corrupt politicians, uh, to talk about immigration. Um, at the same time, though, what makes the, the you know, gun culture, and I would actually argue that we have multiple gun cultures in the U.S., uh, multiple nodes of this debate, what makes it so sort of intractable, animated, um, you can see this as a good thing, you can see this as a bad thing, is that there are many ways in which Americans relate to guns. Um, and, so, and that is both whether you think guns are good, whether you think guns are bad, whatever you think about them. And so, you know, parsing out sort of, you know, Obama's relationship to um, gun rights and gun rights activism and, you know, the appeal of guns is actually a really tricky thing. There's obviously racial politics going on. There's also the politics of just, you know, a Democrat being in office. And of course, uh, you know, Clinton was the last uh, Democrat to take the presidency. And he, of course, uh, passed um, uh, federal gun gun restrictions. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. And when I actually talk to gun carriers. So I'm, you know, it's 2010. Um, Obama is, you know, still pretty fresh in office. And I really expected that a lot of what I would hear would just be very, you know, specifically Obama oriented. Um, and it actually surprised me the extent to which, you know, yeah, they, they were generally conservative. They were not happy about Obama. Um, they had plenty of things to, to criticize about Obama. Um, but the deeper that we would get into sort of, you know, why are you carrying a gun? What, what made you, what was the instance in which you realized, you know, this is something that you need to start doing? Um, it had less to do with sort of who was in the White House and more to do with these kind of more generalized feelings of um, socioeconomic decline, of feelings of, you know, neighborhoods going downhill and, um, you know, decline in public services. Um, so the way that I talk about this in the book is that, you know, it's not so much um, if you are, uh, you know, so if you are lower class, you're going to want to get a gun. Um, that's not my argument. But what my argument is, is that these kind of broad-based feelings of socioeconomic decline, declining, uh, you know, decline, basically the decline in the American dream. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's the ability to, of people, or at least their perceived ability to reach that dream is really what becomes important to understanding the appeal of guns. Now, to bring race back into the picture, then what I found was that race mattered really in terms of how this decline was narrated. And it was often narrated through a language of crime. So crime was used to talk about how, you know, people who grew up in middle class families and are middle class or maybe even upper middle class themselves um, now see their lives as being more insecure than their families because, you know, crime is a threat. Uh, crime was used to talk about, um, you know, decline in public services, that police, there's no longer enough police. Um, and so now people have to carry guns. And of course, crime was very explicitly racialized 
Paris vis a vis Detroit and sort of this specter of Detroit as, um, you know, murder city USA. And so I had gun carriers tell me things like, you know, um, you know, there, there's the threat of, of Detroiters coming, you know, into the suburbs and, and victimizing, um, you know, white suburbanites. Um, and so all, so, so basically to answer the question then of like, how do we get, you know, how do we get from Obama to guns to Trump? Um, you know, I think that Trump himself obviously has, has done this too, talking about sort of, you know, make America great, this idea of, you know, America being in decline and using sort of crime um, and particular, I mean, there's been many examples of this um, that listeners can, can think about um, in terms of, you know, putting sort of putting a very visceral uh, imagery to what that decline is all about. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. You're listening to the second show in our gun series, A Targeted Divide. Jennifer Carlson is our guest. She's the author of Citizen Protectors, The Everyday Politics of Guns in an Age of Decline. Politics! It's a drag! They both want food in the grave! Let me ask you to just uh, to, uh, address the sheepdog idea. So, I, Because it's, a, it's an interesting one. Again, it's a narrative. It's an, it serves a narrative function that's important, I think, because you do say that uh, guns you know, take on the particular meaning that its owner gives to it in some sense. So, uh, so if you don't mind, give me uh, a little bit about what it means to be a sheepdog in terms of a citizen protector. Yeah, so this idea of a sheepdog, actually, um, you know, one of the big uh, uh, kind of popularizers of this notion is Dave Grossman, who is, uh, you know, expert in terms of uh, military police use of force. um, And he's written um, a lot about sort of... um, the, the moral politics of, of the use of force, I guess, is how he would probably characterize it. Um, and so it actually comes from, um, you know, it, it comes from the military and it comes from police. Um, and it's this notion of, and it, you know, it, it, it it's, it's a notion of, uh, that's useful for trying to make sense of, you know, you seeing yourself as a good guy, but you're armed like the bad guy. So how do you parse that out? Um, and so basically the sheepdog is, um, you know, the sheep are the, the sheepdog protects the sheep from the wolves. There's obviously a lot of sort of uh, imagery in terms of using animals to kind of presume that, that that I think kind of naturalizes this like presumption of you know how the use of force works out. So basically, it's it's a moral discourse to to justify the use of force. Um, and what's important about the moral discourse is that it's not just about sort of um, you know using uh, sort of uh, saying that the use of force is, is you know it can, can be a good thing, but it's it's other oriented. So it's not about protecting oneself. It's about protecting others. Um, and I think this is a really, you know, against this like outside intruder who is the the, the wolf. Um, now, gender scholars would look at this and, you know, say, okay, this maps on, well, gender and race scholars, this maps on to this kind of intersectional hierarchy of, of danger and threat um, with, you know, the sheepdog who is the courageous protector, the the sheep who is sort of the, the feminized, um, you know, uh, one who's in need of, of, of protection 
protection. They're the vulnerable one who can't protect themselves. Um, and then you have the wolf who steps in as sort of the, you know, uh, the racialized trope of criminality. Um, so I think that that it, it's, it's a way to sort of have this very kind of gender neutral and colorblind way of talking about, um, you know, guns as moral objects, but it obviously resonates with, uh, these other gender and racial narratives and tropes regarding, um, victimization, vulnerability and, and criminality. Well, let's, uh, l- let's describe your, uh, respondents, your interview subjects, uh, as, as we're trying to imagine the type of people that are giving you these responses. Who, who did you end up talking to? What's the demographic, uh, f- framework look like here? Yeah, this is a great question because I think in some ways my demographics uh, very much uh, kind of fit the stereotype of, uh, you know, what the, the gun care, the American gun carrier, uh, you know, who they look, you know, who they are and what they look like. Um, but in other ways really kind of, uh, upends that. So, uh, in, in terms of politics, they were disproportionately conservative or libertarian. Um, they were, uh, men. So I actually interviewed men and women, but I ended up focusing just on men, uh, almost entirely in the book. Uh, this actually reflects the demographics of concealed carriers. They are disproportionately Proportionally, men as our gun owners. Um, but one thing that is interesting about the state of Michigan is that in terms of race, um, so gun carriers, which is different from gun ownership, but people who carry guns, um, or at least are licensed to carry guns legally, um, if you look at the racial breakdown, it's actually pretty equal among whites and African Americans. And so um, my respondents actually reflected roughly that that breakdown in terms of in terms of race. Um, so a lot of the things that I'm talking about. Um, in terms of talking about crime as a language to describe decline, um, in terms of, you know, thinking about how gender, uh, how guns become a vehicle of sort of working out a particular masculine identity. Um, a lot of that actually, um, was, was the case across race for my sample. Um, now there were ways in which, um, particularly in terms of how uh, gun carriers thought about the police that really broke down in terms of race. Um, and there were distinctions there, but as far as, um, sort of using this language, of decline and sort of mourning the decline of Michigan's industrial economy um, and everything that that entailed, everything from, you know, secure employment to safe neighborhoods to, you know, a very clear script on how to be a good man, which was, you know, breadwinning masculinity. I found that across um, across the board among the men that I interviewed. It's time for a break. This is Saturday Night Special by Leonard Skinner from 1975. The song points up the contradictions inherent in a culture where freedom tends to ring only for one class and one skin tone. The term Saturday Night Special, often also called the Suicide Special, applied broadly to a gun made and sold on the cheap, came into wider use with the passing of the Gun Control Act of 1968, because the act banned the importation and manufacture of many inexpensive firearms. Gun ownership advocates described the term as racist in origin, arguing that many of the guns banned were typically purchased and owned by low-income black people. More with Jennifer Carlson on Citizen Protectors when Interchange returns on WFHB.
back. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Crime, Decline, and the Rise of the Citizen Protector with guest Jennifer Carlson. It's the second show in our series on guns in the USA, a targeted divide. In this segment, we'll hear that guns are answers to some problems and that we would do well to think about what those problems are. It's an American option that opens up political space for the monopolizing influence of the NRA, where carrying a gun translates to a moral good. But thinking in terms of the NRA perhaps blinds us to the dailiness of our overwhelmingly militarized culture. Let's talk a little bit about the idea of why a gun becomes an answer to this idea of social disorder. You know, we talk about crime and, and the idea of crime, which you say has, has, is narrativized, I suppose, right? So what, what is the disorder that everyone is speaking of? Is it simply crime? Is it, as you say, I think you said social services breakdown. Um, literally, you're ta- I guess you're talking about governmental services, government services, government in general, not being able to do anything for these particular respondents, right? They feel that they're, they've been let down by government, even at, at the same time as perhaps not wanting government intrusion in their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think actually to, to answer that question, I think it helps to actually step back to, to the question of gender and masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned in your question, uh, if I'm paraphrasing correctly, you know, that, that guns are about power and strength and this mm-hmm. sort of thing. And that was actually something that I realized that I had to really think carefully about mm-hmm. in terms of how guns actually matter to the men who carry them. Um, and I think it helps to make sense of, you know, what is the appeal of guns? Um, so, you know, certainly there were respondents that I talked to who, you know, conveyed uh, guns as a sense, you know, that that um, guns provided a sense of strength, of power, and that sort of thing. Um, but there were also, and I think this was actually where kind of the heart of this sort of sense of insecurity comes into play, a sense of guns um, creating um, sort of relevancy for men within their families um, as heads of household. Um, so I think that that, so, so if we think beyond just um, um, you know, government breakdown and social breakdown, there's actually a much more intimate breakdown that these gun carriers and I think gun the politics of guns kind of tap into, which is the breakdown in sort of um, men's men's relevance amid the trans or well not really the transition, but the the collapse of the industrial economy. Mm-hmm. Um, so the economy, you know, the industrial economy, the manufacturing economy, which was of course, uh, you know, Michigan uh, was the epicenter of that at one point with the auto industry with um, you know, the, the birth of, of automotive unions and all of that, um, that really was, um, a moment in which it wasn't just about economics, it was also about gender, right? Um, it was about sort of gender roles being um, forged through this economic model. And so when you have the collapse of, um, the industrial, you know, of manufacturing, you also have this collapse of breadwinning masculinity and sort of the ability of men to define themselves around this provider role. And so this is where I see guns really coming in as this, this particularly sort of stabilizing um, element in terms of identity to, to provide a way to think about being a good man that isn't based on something as sort of, um, you know, slippery as, as being a provider, but rather is based on something that is much more concrete, much 
much more reliable, uh, which is um, using a gun to be a protector. Um, so I had gun carers talk about sort of how these different identities um, worked out for them uh, in terms of, you know, um, seeing themselves as both providers and protectors, uh, seeing themselves as, you know, if, if I have to move around a lot for my job, at least I can, you know, the least I need to do is 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 be a protector in my household. Um, so I think that that is where, um, you know, that's, that's where uh, I think it's really important to distinguish between, you know, um, masculinity as power, strength, authority versus masculinity as sort of, you know, what, what gender scholars call masculinist or masculine protection um, that has to do more with the, this kind of chivalrous understanding of, um, you know, of, of frankly, relevancy uh, mm-hmm. within you know, as a head of household. Um, and so what I talk about in the book then is that this gets extended. Um, you know, it's the family becomes the core unit. So so this is one thing that, you know, we already know that men are, uh, or we, we it's, it's widely covered that men are disproportionately gun owners and gun carriers. But if you look at the, the survey data, it's actually um, not just men. It's, it's, well, it's white, Southern, there's a lot of modifiers, but it's married men as well. And I think that this piece of sort of the, you know, this isn't just about self-protection. It's about sort of um, one's position within, within the family, within the, the household that makes sense of, you know, why it's not just men, but married men who are particularly, um, who, who find guns particularly appealing. This is complicated beyond belief though, right? Because, you know, clearly guns uh, are used in, you know, most domestic violence, you know, men against uh, their spouses, their former partners, etc. The gun doesn't protect the spouse the, mm-hmm. in, the, in those situations. But I understand, obviously, the, the idea that seems to be promoting that, that particular perspective. But yeah, and yeah go can ahead. Can I just there with that too? I think that's a really important point because that is one thing that it, it you see that in terms of how gun carriers talk about vulnerability. So one of the things that, um, you know, there, there was a lot of kind of surprising nuance. And one of the, you know, one of the moments where, you know, you're like, okay, this is interesting. Um, gun carriers would, you know, men who carried guns would often say, you know, I really want my wife to be armed. I really want my, you know, I, I've taught all my girlfriends to be, you know, how to use guns. I, you know, it is very important to me that they can defend themselves against crime. Um, but the criminal is always imagined as an outside intruder. And so this is where you see this kind of, you know, gap where, you know, there's there, on the one hand, it's, it's very much sort of this, um, pro women stance of, I, you know, I want women to be able to defend themselves and, and that sort of thing, but kind of an inability to see that, as you said, um, you know, women are victimized by the people that they are, um, you know, that they are, that they are most intimate with. And what's interesting is that I think, um, women who carry guns are actually, um, you know, they're, they're aware of this slippage. And, um, it was very interesting to sort of compare the sort of narratives of, of men versus women, um, that I talked to with, with regard to that. So I think there is something really important in terms of, you know, a, a kind of, um, obscuring different kinds of victimization and really, uh, ramping up vulnerability as a result. Well, uh, so, so this seems fairly simple to say, uh, a man feels less like a man now for many, many reasons. But, you know, trying to decide what made a man feel like a man in the first place, you know, you start where you, you mentioned industri- the industrial uh, collapse in this country. So you were a breadwinner. You talk about being a provider, a breadwinner. Uh, a breadwinner has um, 
maybe an easier life too. I think well, you know these again are sort of narrative functions as much as anything else. So once once those things collapse and and you're not a breadwinner or you're you know marginally getting by if at all, uh, you're struggling, uh, your family's struggling. Um, the idea of a gun is a simple one, right? So I think the I think for me, I, I, I've always done this with guns and I'm going to confess my own, you know, sense of the gun simply being a very easy way to answer your problems, whether it's the right answer or not <laughs> is obviously a major question, but the gun is an answer, right? To, to many questions. And, um, you know, if you can't, answer the economic question, the gun can make you feel like you have some answer. Um, if you can't answer the provider question, the gun is there. If you can't answer uh, your own sense of being um, uh, an attractive partner even, the gun is there. If you can't answer the question of whether you're, um, you're afraid of the crime around you, the gun answers the question. If the politics is confusing you, the gun is there for you. Um, and the gun becomes a part of the community and the gun is the, at the center of those communities as well. So, you know, if we can, if we can just say the gun becomes a simple answer for a complex world, <laughs> right? Um, it, well, I would actually push back a little bit on okay, that. Sure. I guess I do think so. I do think it's the case that you know, and I think this is something that um, you know, proponents of greater gun restrictions and gun control. Um, it's it's easy to forget that there is something um, persuasive about the concreteness of a gun, right? Um, it's something you have. It's something you hold. It's something that, you know, gun carriers told me it's it's like a wallet or a cell phone. It becomes a part of who you are. Um, so I think that there is something, there's something really powerful about that. Um, that being said, though, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, and again, I, I really, there are many different paths that people take to, to become gun carriers. Um, from, you know, everything from, you know, I became a gun rights activist because I was a trucker and I listened to conservative talk radio to, um, you know, I, um, I, I, I don't feel safe exercising outside in Detroit and I want to, I, I want to lose my gut. So I feel like I need to be armed in order to ride my bicycle around Detroit and feel safe. Um, you know, so there, there are very different kinds of problems that people solve with guns. Um, but, and, and I think your point that, that, you know, they are salt, the, the guns are solving problems and that it, we would do well to think about what those problems are. Um, you know, I think that for some gun carriers, it really, you know, the gun, the gun, is a totem. But I think for other gun carriers, I wouldn't underestimate their ability to really realize that this is not, um, you know, this is, this is the last kind of the stopgap. This isn't necessarily, you know, the ideal, uh, you know, the ideal go-to solution, mm -hmm. but it's a solution that Americans have. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. You're listening to the second show in our gun series, A Targeted Divide. Jennifer Carlson is our guest. She's the author of Citizen Protectors, The Everyday Politics of Guns in an Age of Decline. Politics! You know, I, I wasn't trying to simplify and just say, you know, the gun is, you know, a, a dumb response to all problems. In, in, some, res in some respects, that that is how I think about it, and, and, but I think about that 
when there's an absolute response to most things, right? So you, you, so we often stop thinking about things because we have a gun or because we, the gun is there for us. Um, we often do this to me. I think we often do this if we, if we are religious, um, we stop thinking about certain, certain things. If we have an answer that will give us comfort. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I, I do think that this is part of, um, you know, you can like the NRA, you cannot like the NRA, but I think this is also a big part of what has made the NRA so successful in um, really transforming American gun culture. And, you know, to get at that, it's not you, you need to not just look at sort of the, the national debates where the NRA comes in and, and, you know, puts out their media and makes their statements, um, but also look at what the NRA is doing at a much more local level. So the NRA is not just a political lobby. They're also a national firearms training organization. In fact, um, you know, there's, there's been more kind of movement in terms of, uh, you know, training organizations, but they remain, you know, kind of the go-to training organization for firearms. Um, many of these laws that um, govern uh, shall issue licensing explicitly name the NRA as a preferred um either explicitly or implicitly, uh, basically reference the NRA as a preferred training organization to get the training certification, to get the concealed pistol license. And what you learn in those classes is really, you know, um, everything from, uh, you know, obviously you learn the law, you learn how to target shoot. You don't necessarily learn how to, you know, shoot from cover or concealment, shoot prone, do the kinds of things that you might want to practice if you actually, you know, want to use your, you know, think you will have to use your gun defensively. Um, but you also, also learn about sort of, you know, the moral politics of why having this gun makes you a, a doesn't make you a bad person, but in fact makes you a good uh, member of your community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is, you know, and, and so there's that piece of it. There's also the piece that sort of encourages people to, you know, have situational awareness. Think about having your gun on you at all times and what that means in terms of situational awareness. And so really it's kind of this push to, um, you know, as you say, sort of uh, focus on integrating the gun as a central part of one's life, at least as you carry it, you know, you know, at least insofar as you're carrying it and would carry it like a wallet or a cell phone. Mm-hmm. Well, it's uh, that that's troubling, obviously, <laughs> to me anyway, because, you know, imagining, you know, a culture centered around that kind of training, which is, you know, training and thinking, training and, uh, you know, I'll call it propaganda, you know, you're propagandizing a certain way of life within those particular training cultures. And that becomes, you know, how you're advised to think through your day and life, you know, your encounters with other people, your idea that you need to sit with your back to the you know, so you're facing a door, uh, so you're projecting who might walk in and, and be trouble. So you're, you know, you're, you're casing the joint before you go in. You're, you know, th- this kind of thing seems difficult to imagine a citizen who is a, um, a partner or a community member versus antagonisms in, in, in many ways. So, or it becomes tribalized, right? That there are an us and a them that makes very clear, uh, distinctions for you as a gun carrier. How do I, how do I know who's a them out there? Cause they also carry weapons. So this is, this is difficult, right? That's a difficult thing for me to, to make sense of, um, because it's so divisive. Um, what, what is a good citizen in that, that way? Because all of us are citizens and that makes me scared as a citizen. Yeah. And I think that, you know, this, I think goes back to this question of, you know, why it's so important to understand 
gun culture, not from the outside, but from really understanding how, what, what are the meanings people attach to guns and how are those meanings made? Um, because I, you know, I don't think, you know, the gun, the gun regulation lobby is not exactly in the, you know, they're not interested in gun training. Um, they're not interested in really engaging in this kind of thing. And so what that does is essentially create a vacuum where, Mm. you know, there's, you know, if people are going to be carrying guns, um, it's entirely sensible to say, you know, there should be some kind of training. There should be some kind of discussion about the, the moral implications of what is going on. Um, but what is effectively happening? then is that the NRA has monopolized that space. And so I think that that is, you know, it's, it's, and this happens a lot when you, when you have conversations about guns where, you know, you, you get into kind of the nitty gritty and it's like, oh, I can't, you know, like, how did we get to this point? How, you know, like, you know, this kind of what you just expressed. And, um, at the end of the day, this is the point we're at. We're at a, you know, we're at a point where there's over 16 million Americans who are licensed to carry guns. Uh, there's many more who live in states like I live in, um, Arizona, where if you can legally own it, you can legally carry it. So I don't need a permit to carry a firearm in Arizona. Um, I can do so legally without a permit. Um, there are, um, you know, over 300 million guns in circulation. Um, and so all of these things add up to circumstances that, you know, I certainly didn't uh, vote into being. Um, I certainly did, you know, I don't, many, <laughs> you know, many of us alive have not, you know, proactively pushed for one way or another. And yet here we are um, it, with, with this particular gun context that mm-hmm. we have. Um, and so I think that's why, you know, it, it's, it, yes, there's the kind of, compulsion to say, oh my God, this is, you know, this is horrifying to see, to hear what's happening. But there's also the question of why is it, why, why is there such a vacuum where the NRA is the only, um, you know, the only organization within that space. And frankly, what I see in the, you know, in terms of movement here is not sort of people who are like, Hey, let's have a conversation about, um, you know, about, uh, implicit bias, for example, which is what, you know, I talk about that in my book, Mm -hmm. um, involving race and gender and, and even class, um, what you actually see is, um, you know, other gun, gun organ, pro gun organizations actually trying to carve out some space in terms of training. Um, and I will say that, you know, I got at least one response, um, from a gun trainer who actually read my book and said, I'm going to talk about implicit bias now in my class because Mm -hmm. of this book. Which I was like that, you know, that in given given where we are, I think that is, you know, that that's one way of moving the conversation forward. It's time for another break. This is Gun Control by Ian Hunter from the 1976 release All American Alien Boy. Born in England and son of an MI5 officer. Hunter is best known as the lead singer of the English rock band Mata Hoople. He emigrated to the U.S. in 1974. He called gun control a piss take on gun culture in the U.S. More on Citizen Protectors with author Jennifer Carlson when Interchange returns on WFHB. Stick to your guns, boys, stick to your guns. We'll make a lot of money if we stick to the guns. The president's with us, boys, so join in the fun. We can make a lot of Step up the love 
Welcome back to Interchange for this final segment with Jennifer Carlson on the everyday politics of guns. We'll focus on how to transform the gun debate, which means we first have to recognize the pervasiveness of our militarized culture and consider why, as citizens, we approve of so much firepower actually being directed at us. Assassinate presidents and they ain't the only ones. We can get them all young and old if we stick to our guns. So stick to your guns, boys. Well, um, part of what, what I'm suggesting is only that, uh, that people legislated the guns, right? That we had lobby, and again, we, we, we have lobbyists, we have an industry, we have a powerful industry that makes lots and lots and lots and lots of money off of guns. And so we have um, let our, our sort of capitalist gun lobby and gun industry create our culture. And if we go in and we allow NR, the NRA in particular to create, you know, citizenship classes uh, in terms of gun ownership, uh, the way to be a good citizen is to be a gun owner, that you got to want to yeah. back off of that. Uh, I don't know yeah. how, obviously, but that yeah. doesn't make any sense. Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, I think... This kind of reminds me in the aftermath of the Las Vegas shooting mm -hmm. back in October. Um, and, and right after that shooting, there was a series of op-eds and it was, it was this really interesting moment and it only lasted for about 24 or 36 hours where, and you can see the headlines. Basically, the message was the gun debate is over. This, this mass shooting is, is probably not going to change anything. And we need to, we need to kind of, wrap our heads around sort of the, the reality of the situation that, that we're in. Um, and I think that in, I actually saw that as, okay, if we can actually let go of sort of the, the terms of the debate as they are usually debated, that's, that's kind of the first step I actually think in, in transforming the gun debate. Um, and so I actually, and, and I think, you know, even so, so I don't actually hear when I say like, you know, we need to, we need to really wrap our heads around the reality of 300 million guns in circular, more than that in circulation. I, I don't see that as necessarily like this, this, is the, this means that we're done with the debate. I think it means that this is a moment where we can reimagine the debate um, and reimagine how to talk about guns and how to think about guns and think about their their you know their penetration into everyday life of you know in American society. But I think in order to do that, then and I think this is actually where. Um, frankly, the way we talk about guns um, becomes really problematic. And this is on both sides of the debate. Um, and it has to do with race and policing. So I think there's a tendency and I, I mean, I've done it and you've done it throughout this conversation to kind of reduce um, sort of the problem of guns to, you know, what people who own guns are doing, and what the NRA is doing and what the gun industry is doing. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, so my second book actually that I'm working on right now, um, actually tries to sort of break open that logic by talking about, um, the police, um, by talking about sort of the much broader ways beyond the NRA that, you know, guns are actually integrated into our everyday Mm -hmm. lives. Um, and some of that, again, you know, leads us back to the NRA. So the Mm -hmm. whole concept of police qualification, um, the idea that police should qualify with handguns, um, that was actually a notion that was promoted by the the NRA. Hmm. Um, so that's how we get. So, so there's actually very interesting moments. Um, now, there's obviously moments where police and the NRA disagree, but there, there are these really interesting moments where um, sort of law enforcement, as armed agents of the state and the NRA, uh, sort of uh, co constitute one one mm-hmm. another. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think we actually need to be thinking bigger mm-hmm. in terms of, and I, and I, frankly, I, I think that you know the the gun rights side that is often going to say, you know, we need to talk about the media and we need to talk about violent video games. Okay. Regardless of what place that is coming from. Um, I lived in Canada for several years. My first job was actually at the university of Toronto and just the feeling of sort of how, um, you know, militarized in terms of just, um, you know, everything from guns themselves to uh, gun involved media to, um, you know, the way police look and carry themselves. Um, we are a very militarized society or mm-hmm. weapon society. Um, and it, it goes, gun culture is a, is a big part of that, but it goes beyond that. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. You're listening to the second show in our gun series, A Targeted Divide. Jennifer Carlson is our guest. She's the author of Citizen Protectors, The Everyday Politics of Guns in an Age of Decline. What I did want to point to or or think about is something you said, again, about understanding the reality that we live in. It's an interesting, uh, uh, I think, parallel to to how we deal with the you know left versus right questions on media um media messages we things of this nature right so if we think about it politically we think that the left doesn't uh own guns you know the, the and yeah. and just like we don't propagandize the right way as you watch the you know there are left wing media obviously but you know all media is is conservative uh at, or at least uh, profit driven uh, as its nat- at its nature but the idea that that guns are on the right and and propaganda for guns is successful. Uh, propaganda, uh, the propaganda engine of right wing media is far more successful, as far as I can tell, than than left wing propaganda. Uh, so the question is still is uh, from within that space. You know, how does a person who doesn't think that the world should be full of guns, you know, understand the political ability? to make any difference. If we're going to talk about guns as a reality, I, I guess I'm sort of stuck on what I'm supposed to do, um, how I'm supposed to respond, you know, what it's supposed to mean to me to encounter someone with a weapon if I don't want to have a weapon. You know, these are very, very difficult questions that I never think of in terms of the world order. I don't want to, I've had conversations about police before and with police. I don't, I don't like police having guns either. A gun escalates always guns aren't for de-escalation you know they're confrontive they're they're the answer 
So that's confusing to me. I don't know how I'm supposed to find a way to live in a world where I have to figure out the reality of guns. Well, I think what you do is you, and I think you you just said that you did this, you talk to, you talk across the aisle, you talk across the issue. Um, and I think that is something that we're doing less and less. Um, I teach a class on guns in America and at the University of Arizona. And that's, you know, basically what I tell them is that you're going to learn a lot about guns, but you're also going to learn how to talk to people who fundamentally disagree with you on this issue. And you're going to have to figure out a way to you know, to actually have a conversation, which is, is, you know, I think that we've gotten to a point in our political discourse where that's, you know, people, people can't even hold conversations. So I think that, and, and what, and I think you just laid out why, you know, who loses from that, um, and how that, that really harms the, the possibilities for imagining different ways of thinking about. And I would actually say it's, it's not just about the place of guns, but it's, it's about imagining what, what, security looks like? What does protection look like? What is the kind of social order that we want? And what are we willing to give up or endorse in order to have it? Um, and I think that's really what it comes down to. And guns are just one vehicle for that. Um, and you can actually look at that, you know, you can ask that question throughout American history. And um, I think, you know, readers who want to do or listeners who want to do that um, should pick up a, a, a copy of Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz's book, uh, Loaded, to really trace out um, sort of these racialized histories of, of security and protection. Hmm. Um, but I also think that there's, you know, there's interesting, and again, this really requires being sort of, uh, you know, really uh, having your finger on the pulse of, of, you know, what's going on. So this is an example of something that I, I think is pretty fascinating. So I mentioned earlier in the, in the show that, um, uh, this whole notion of police uh, qualifying with their firearms and handguns and, ha and you know, the handgun being part of the police uniform, um, that was really a big push by the the National Rifle Association in the, the 19-teens, uh, the 1920s. Um, and so, you know, that's that's something we can talk about and the realities of that and, and, and the implications of that. Um, I was just actually at um, Axon, which was the company, uh, the company formerly known as Taser. They had a summit up in Scottsdale this uh, this week. Um, and one of their kind of, um, you know, taglines now with Tasers is to make the bullet obsolete. So make handguns obsolete, have, you know, electric weapons instead like the Taser. Now, obviously, there are a whole lot of things we can talk about in terms of uh, the, um, you know, whether that's, you know, whether whether electric weapons are a good thing or not. But the fact is, they're actually coming out and basically saying, we want to make handguns obsolete for law enforcement. Now, this is really fascinating, because it's not, you know, the gun, the gun control lobby coming in. It's not activists. It's actually, you know, basically, you know, it's a corporation coming in and saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to rewrite the rules in terms of what it means to, to be a police officer. Officer and what, what's part of that uniform uh, in the United States in a way that actually, you know, is, is stepping on the NRA's toes. Well, I, I guess we didn't, you know, we, we talk about this as, as if there's only one way to be, and that's the U.S. way to be. Other cultures don't have guns, right? Other cultures don't do this kind of thing. Other cultures well, do not confront this, do they? And I think what's really different, I mean, it's not just that other cultures don't have guns. Um, other countries have guns. Sure, Canada sure. has guns. <laughs> in Canada. Right. Um, the difference, though, is that, you know, just to take the Canadian example, is that there is a very different culture surrounding guns. Right. Um, so Canadian gun culture is not a self-defense gun culture. It's a hunting gun culture. Um, so that is a very – so so it's, you know, and that, again – 
it's really the shift from hunting to self-defense that integrates guns into, you know, everyday life. When did that, way. Jennifer, let me, let me jump in and ask you when that really happened. I mean, that is the, that's probably the perfect, which I probably should have started with that, right? Because, you know, a lot of people I know literally are hunters. When did the propaganda of gun ownership, did it, does it coincide with actual uh, economic, the actual ac- economic downturn, even from the 70s on, right? When, when we begin to shift everything to overseas production, when, when we become a, a, a culture of consumption instead of production, when people lose those manufacturing jobs, do we move from, from guns being primarily for hunters to guns being for everyone? At that, it, it, does it move with the economics that in, in lockstep? Yeah, so there's a there's a book actually by Pamela Haig that looks at sort of the the industry the gun industry particularly through the lens of advertising, um, and so what she traces out is that you have this you know as as Americans actually uh, you know started moving to cities they started leaving rural areas they started working nine to five jobs um, and you know kind of the the um, madmen <laughs> if we look at that you know think about that um, imagery of the 1950s. Um, that's when you actually see the gun industry really promoting guns as sort of a mark of um, uh, social socialization from, you know, being a boy to becoming a man um, as part of sort of, you know, all American boyhood as part of uh, and hunting is definitely a big part of that. So hunting becomes this sort of leisure activity uh, that is associated with guns. Um, and that really is, you know, you can still see it in gun advertising today. Um, but what happens in the 1960s is you start, um, you know, you start having, and this obviously is related to a much bigger transformation beyond just, uh, you know, the gun industry, but you have the war on crime, you have um, uh, the the um, dog whistle politics of, uh, and the, so- the Southern strategy of, of you know, uh, tough on crime politics. Um, and so what happens is that you can actually see this, you know, you can see this shift in terms of advertisements increasingly um, uh, being geared toward concealed carry guns. Um, so you conceal carry a gun, not because you don't want the deer to see your gun, but because you are, you know, it's a, it's a self-defense, um, you know, a self-defense gun. Um, actually, David Yamini, who's at Wake Forest, uh, he's actually traced this this arc in terms of the shift from hunting to, to concealed carry. Hmm. Um, and you also see it in terms of, obviously, um, law, you see it in terms of, um, you know, what, what the NRA is actually saying in their, um, in their print, uh, and their media materials. Um, and you also see it in when, um, how Americans are ex- explaining why they own guns. So up until the late nineties, um, there's actually this really dramatic shift, um, from in the late nineties where Americans are saying, you know, the pri- if I have to pick one reason, the reason I own my gun is for hunting. Um, you know, Years later, once we get into the 2000s, that actually flips, and now the number one reason is um, self-defense. That's why pe- that's why Americans, if they have to pick a reason, the, the majority of Americans are saying self-defense. During that same time period, you also see a couple of other really dramatic shifts, um, and this goes back into this idea that you know it's not just about you know guns being uh, you know more you know people owning guns. It's about what people are doing with guns and the meanings that they're attaching to those guns. Mm-hmm. So you actually actually see these very dramatic 
dramatic shifts and, you know, Gallup, Pew, um, you can, you can see it in, in, you know, different surveys where in the majority around the two, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, Americans are saying either, uh, guns make a gun, a gun in the home makes that home less safe. Uh, owning a gun makes Americans less safe. Now, fast forward, um, you ask that question and it, those numbers have almost, uh, exactly flipped. So the majority of Americans are saying a gun in a home makes that gun, that home safer. Um, and, a, and a owning guns makes Americans safer. Um, and that is, those numbers are way more than the number of gun owning households. So there are, is a lot of buy-in by people who don't own guns that still see this as part of, as, as kind of producing safety within the U.S. That's our show. We'll close with Both Sides of the Gun by Ben Harper off the 2006 album of the same name. Our thanks to Jennifer Carlson for sharing her thoughts on the ways the gun, indisputably a tool of destruction and violence, makes meaning in a culture where the economic structures that propped up work in the family have crumbled. What is a man when he can't provide? Maybe he can't tell you, but he sure can show you. Next time on Interchange, a 90-minute finale for our series, A Targeted Divide. What bullets do to bodies and lives. Structural violence, firearms, and surviving gunshot wounds. We know a lot about gun homicide, much less about what life is like for the wounded living. What happens to those who get shot but live? How does the arc of their lives bend? And what are the roles of race, poverty, and opportunity in all of this? Ju Young Lee from the University of Toronto is our guest. What Bullets Do to Bodies and Lives, a 90-minute special, next time on Interchange, starting at 5.30 p.m. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. A Targeted Divide is co-produced by Robert Crouch. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon. Executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. They put one foot in the grave.